Welcome. We're glad y'all are here. Happy Mother's Day to the moms in the room, grandmothers. I hope y'all have big plans, big festivities for lunch. Um, We're going to pray uh, for our moms, and we're going to pray for another church in our community. We're also going to pray for those that are uh, holidays are as much a time of celebrating family and celebrating specific people. Maybe they're also a time where folks might be hurting and uh, dealing with a loss that is connected to uh, Mother's Day or other other difficulties. So I want to pray for both ends of the spectrum this morning and uh, pray about how we spend these next few minutes. Let's pray. God, we are thankful, thankful for uh, the opportunity to gather. Lord, I, uh, we recognize that there's a supernatural thing that takes place when your people gather and where we listen, uh, where we seek your face and listen, where we sing true things to you, uh, back to you, about you, where we are reminded as we sing not only reminding ourselves, but hearing the person to the left and right of us and front and behind us uh, singing as well, that we are encouraged, that we have a God that is good, uh, is gracious, that loves us, that cares for us, that has loved the world in the person and work of Christ. Lord, I pray that those uh, sort of things are taking place this morning and uh, that that supernatural uh, stirring is taking place as we're reminded of those great and awesome things. Uh, Lord, this morning uh, we I want to just take a moment and just thank you for the ministry that you have given us through moms and uh, grandmothers. And uh, we are thankful for the, the tender mercy, the tender care, the attentiveness, the thoughtfulness, the um, uh, relentless uh, love, even when folks don't deserve it, the kind of love that a mom extends kids and grandkids. Just uh, we're grateful for that, that kind of love, Lord, and thankful for that uh, really specific kind of love that you've given us through our moms. Uh, Lord, too, this morning we want to pray for those that are, are dealing with a loss, just a, even a fresh or somewhat fresh uh, um, difficulty in dealing with someone that they've lost. And maybe it's a mom or a grandmother. I want to pray for those this morning that are grieving and uh, that they will have uh, just really sweet memories of uh, their mothers or grandmothers in these, in these next few hours today. Pray for families as we gather, Lord, that we'll bring you glory in how we spend our time today, not just in worship, but also in fellowship over a, a meal together that we'll have uh, conversations that, that are about you, that are uh, um, great, uh, that are worship-fueled, um, that are encouraging and uplifting, Lord. I'm just entrusting this day to you and trusting uh, those uh, in this room in this day to you, to you as well, Lord. Praying also for another church in our community and praying for Travis Chappell and uh, for Fellowship Bible Church, Lord, and just uh, lifting him up and asking you to bless him, first of all, in his uh, ministry as a pastor and as his uh, preaching ministry, is, is, uh, even this morning as he's preparing to preach, Lord, that, that you would use him uh, to equip the saints, Lord. I pray that you would uh, bless him too, that, that he uh, is connecting worship to home, to marriage, to family, and that that, that is changing him at home where he is uh, in many ways loving his wife as Christ loved the church and that he is... Um, being a good shepherd to his children because of the gospel, because he's being fueled by that. Lord, I pray that that will, will uh, connect to the pulpit and connect to his, his ministry as a, a pastor of Fellowship Bible Church. Lord, we pray that the, the church as a whole, uh, we pray for, the, for health, for growth, for worship. Uh, we pray that the people that are gathering this morning at Fellowship Bible Church will leave more salty and brighter and more aromatic as a result of the time that they've spent uh, gathered with your people. Lord, we are entrusting this time to you and asking you to use it for your glory. Uh, Shape us, equip us, grow us. um, Help us to worship. 
praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to the book of Job. We are already in Job, so moms that might be visiting with us this morning, this isn't a mom message about Job. That'd be kind of funny. I know mom's hard. Mom and being a mom is hard, but that's not the... We'll be in Job on Father's Day, too, so um, it's not a mom-specific thing. It's just we're in Job. We've been in Job the last few weeks, and we'll be for the next few weeks. And um, it's a book really about a man named Job, obviously, a good, fine man named Job. And really, as much as it's a book about Job, where we get to study a guy that's worth emulating, it's also a book about his God, who's also our God. So it's a Job study, it's a God study, and everything in between. So... We want to be very intentional about distinguishing at times when we're doing one or the other. And I think this morning in this message, we may be leaning a little bit more in the direction of a Job study, and then next Sunday more in the direction of a God study. But they have overlap, so it's not going to be that tidy, just kind of how the, the sermon this morning fleshes out. Let's begin with our... Uh, we're really just going to climb into the entire first chapter this morning. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people. The actual Hebrew is sons, which is an important point of the book. The book is about what it means to be a son of God. Sons is a theme. He was the greatest of all the sons of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on their day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, worship, thus Job did continually. Now, one thing that's important I want to just point out as we continue this is the last posture that we're seeing of Job before we end the chapter this morning. We're going to be ending the chapter in the last few verses. But I want you to kind of have a visual of Job worshiping, consecrating his sons and his daughters, really praying for, um, offering sacrifices for his sons and daughters. That's the last posture we see in Job. It's a fine man. There's none like him on the face of the earth, it says. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and turns away from evil. Let's see what happens now. Simultaneously with Job just being Job in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face." And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Job is just busy being Job, and simultaneously his fate is being decided in a divine council, divine courtroom almost, where he's not present. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't have counsel representing him there. 
and his fate is being decided. And God is doing what he does, and Satan is doing what he does. We can had a whole Sunday dedicated to Satan. Satan is accusing. That's what his name means. He's accusing Satan, or he's, excuse me, he's excusing, accusing Job of having a mercenary faith. He's accusing Job of being a hypocrite, that he's really just in it for the loot and the goods. And he's also accusing God of underwriting that mercenary faith. Satan is doing what he does, but God is also doing what he does. It's a very important thing for us to consider in this book of Job and maybe the reason that people avoid the book of Job because when we see God doing what he's doing in this passage, we have to sort of wrestle with it because it doesn't seem to make sense. Look at what's happening in verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Satan is just, I've just been out hunting, just out prowling around looking for someone to devour. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He served Job up on a platter. And then in verse 12, he gives Satan permission. Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Very difficult thing to reckon with. A good and loving and protecting and caring and merciful and graceful God, the same God that we worship today and every day, is the same God of Job that allowed Satan to test a blameless and upright man who feared the Lord. Let's see what then happened in verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking... There came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job at this point has lost everything. To the Sabaeans, to the Chaldeans, fire has fallen from heaven. The fire of God, it says, and a supernatural wind have taken everything that's dear to this man. And we're going to spend the morning considering how he responds. These last few dear verses of chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and Worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What I want to do this morning is just spend a few minutes considering, first of all, Job's verbs, what he does specifically in verse 20. And then I want to consider his words, what we hear him say in verse 20. 21. First of all, his verbs. First of all, he arose. The last posture that we saw Job in was worshiping on behalf of his sons and daughters, offering sacrifices. That's the last place we see him rising early in the morning and offering burnt offerings for his children. 
We have no idea what posture he's in at the moment that he begins hearing this cascading uh, catastrophes, this, this sequence of catastrophes that are just overlapping one on top of one another. I can't but imagine that he, it, wouldn't, it wasn't but the first one that made him sit down. We know he's not standing because later he arose. He might be on his face. He might be fallen down. The fact that it says later that he fell down suggests that here he's seated. You know what that's like when you get bad news and someone says, hey, I think you need to sit down before I give you this news. We don't know his posture, but I have the sense that he is seated hearing this, these overlapping heartbreaks that leave him either sitting or prostrate or something. And once the waterfall of catastrophes is finished, then he arose. Next, he tore his robe. Tearing your clothes was an ancient response to grief and loss and bad news. And like we wear black at a funeral, their customary response would have been to tear their garments. There are many examples of it in the Bible. Uh, Whenever Joseph was sold off into slavery and Reuben, the brother that didn't want that to happen, found out, He tore his robes. When they gave the bad news to Jacob, the dad, he tore his robes. It's a very common thing in our Bibles. And even today, Jews practice this as more of a ritual during a time of mourning. It's called kariah, where they cut their robes or their garments with a pair of scissors. The only person in our Bibles that suggests that cannot, is not allowed to tear their garments, was the priest. He arose, he tore his robes. And then he shaved his head. We have some sense here that this is uh, maybe proof that Job is not an Israelite, the fact that he shaved his head. Israelites were not allowed really to shave their heads as a practice of mourning. Uh, You get the sense that, that he is an Edomite here is what we believe and not an Israelite. He shaves his head and it seems a cultural response to grief. There's actually a current day practice for Hindus for shaving their head called tonsure. We know that he arose. We know that he... Um, he tore his robes, he shaved his head, and the next thing we know is that he fell. There's nothing profound about the fact that he fell. It just seems to be a human response to really bad news, the inability to even hold yourself up anymore. This suggests helplessness, surrender, extreme heartache, extreme loss, The Sabaean raid and the murdered servants, the fire from heaven that killed his sheep and his servants, the Chaldean raid and the last of his servants are murdered, and then last and worst, the supernatural wind hitting all four corners of the house at the same time that kills his seven sons and three daughters like one big altar. He just fell to the ground. So far, the things that have happened to him, his rising up, his tearing his robes, his shaving his head, his falling to the ground, they all kind of make sense. You know, you can kind of climb into the story, even in an ancient story, and imagine that if I was in the ancient context, I might do all of those things. But the next thing he does really leaves me shocked, and I hope it leaves you shocked as well. It says, he worshiped. He worshiped. The word just means that he bowed, but we know that there's more to it than just bowing because we already know that he arose and that he fell to the ground later. This is something different from bowing and falling to the ground. There's more to it. There's more substance to it, more substance to it. Everything else I can understand, but this worshiping is hard to really wrap my head around. I can think of all the alternatives. He stuck a gun in his mouth. 
I mean, it's a graphic story, so let's be graphic. We know what people do with tragedy. We could also imagine that how he might respond by sticking a gun in his mouth. We might imagine that he might check into a mental facility. We're just so overwhelmed with bad news that you just can't even process it and you find yourself needing to be institutionalized. We might imagine the story going the way where he just kind of walks off into the woods and he's never seen from, never heard from again. You can imagine the catastrophes overlapping, leaving him like, I just have to walk away from this. There's nothing I can do. Those things I can kind of imagine. I might imagine, too, if Netflix got a hold of the story that he'd become a vigilante and he would make it his life mission to even the score with the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. He'd wear black and carry weapons that could kill a bunch of people. We might imagine he might drink himself to death. We might imagine he might starve himself to death. But instead, it says he worshipped. I thought about some of the ancient responses to suffering, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Um, the Epicureans might seek to, to combat suffering and pain and loss with pleasure. That might be a response that Epicurus would recommend. The Stoics, on the other hand, might fight suffering and pain with virtue. It's actually Seneca who said, misfortune is virtue's opportunity. Man, I can appreciate those responses. I can't help but think about the Black Knight from uh, Monty Python when I think of those kind of responses. Or he, ah, it's just a flesh wound. He loses his arm and he loses his other arm. And I've had worse. Man, it's funny. It's comical. But I know that that's the way some people deal with suffering and loss. That's the way the ancients dealt with it. But this guy, this Job, this man worshiped. I want to make sense of how he did that. The cool thing is we have his words. And his words are so profound, they are actually described in verse 22. It says, In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. These are profound words. These are potent words. So we're going to spend the morning just considering the words in two pieces. First, we'll consider the phrase, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. And then we'll consider... The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's first consider, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. What I hope to do in just considering these two phrases is um, to express three or four things that we can glean from this passage about worship. Let's deal with this first one. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. We could just wrestle with that question say, what comfort would it be in time of loss to make a beeline to that? It's almost like him saying, I came in empty-handed and I'll leave empty-handed. Years ago, Christy and I went to a casino, not to gamble, but just because they apparently have great buffets. The buffet was not very good. It was cheap. That was one good thing. We, weren't, uh, we didn't have a lot of money at that time, so that was a good plan. Um, but you might imagine as you're at a casino that that might be something someone would say as they're leaving the casino at the end of a hard day. I came in empty-handed and I leave empty-handed. Of course, you didn't come in empty-handed, but enjoying or really uh, landing on the thought that you win some, you lose some. It sounds like a Kenny Rogers kind of approach, Kenny Rogers song. 
Is this more to it than this? I hope it is because God says he didn't sin with his lips, that he represented God well, and that this should be words that are potent, that are worth considering. At first blush, they don't sound like worship. They don't sound like wisdom even for that matter. Naked I came in and naked I'll return. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to try and make sense of what he said here with other scripture. There's actually a term for that. And as you turn there, I'll share the term with you. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 will be to the right of Job, just a few uh, pages. I don't know the number of pages. depends on your Bible. But it's just a few books later, kind of mid-Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. There's a term for what we're doing right now. It's called analogy of faith. When you try and interpret Scripture with Scripture. And that's really largely what we try and do at Crosspoint Fellowship. Sermons, that's our approach to sermons, is interpreting Scripture with Scripture. So we can try and make sense of this phrase, I think, and going to another place where the phrase was used as well. In the book of Ecclesiastes, what's really cool and especially wise about this is we're going to wisdom literature to make sense of wisdom literature. It kind of seems wise, like a great approach, like this will be a good plan. Beginning in verse 13 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad, bad venture. And he is, his father, or he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Okay, That's sort of the first evil that he deals with here. Riches were kept, but riches were lost through a bad venture. And this guy, this man that he's speaking of here, has nothing for his son. And then he uses this phrase that'll be, or this this. This sentence that will be familiar to us. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. He says this is also a grievous evil. It's like a second evil he's explaining here. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? It's a key term there where you get the sense that he's equating all these things that people toil for, that spend their lives after, as wind. The first evil is riches were kept, riches were lost in a bad venture, and he's empty-handed when it comes to giving something to his son. He's got nothing to give him. Naked he came into this world, and naked he'll go out. And the second evil there is what we toil for is wind. It just blows away. Man, if you want to get a sense of sort of interpreting Scripture with Scripture, we go to this passage and we see the point here of the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is the futility of riches. He's calling riches and what we work so hard for as wind. He's equating it to wind. And then in the end, to make sense of the book of Ecclesiastes, if we were to read this passage just out of context, we would miss the point of Ecclesiastes. It's not just a book about riches. Because here's where the book of Ecclesiastes lands with this last verse, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The end of the matter has been heard. He's dealing with all these things that are wind and vapor, these things that are elusive that we're so hard after. He says, the end of the matter is all, uh, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. What everything distills down to in the book of Ecclesiastes is given the give and take of time where the wind blows and stuff ebbs and flows and you have stuff and then you lose stuff is the God who made you 
and the God you'll answer to. That's where the preacher in Ecclesiastes lands. And I think that's something of the point that's being made here in Job. He connects his present state to his first state and essentially says, I'm no poorer now than when I was born. The ledgers have been wiped clean. All the stuff that I've amassed, even my family, has been taken away from me. It turned out to all be wind, not just riches. It turned out to be that elusive. It was just blown away. Man, I find myself really comforted at this notion when we're talking about stuff. Because stuff ebbs and flows, doesn't it? You lose something, it's easy to make a beeline and say, well, it's just stuff. It's easy to think about camels and oxen and female donkeys that way, but it's hard to talk about my family that way. Right? We're not just talking about his, his sheep and his camels and his female donkeys. We're talking about people, too, his servants. And we're talking about his seven sons and three daughters. We're talking about his family. Man, it's really easy to talk about stuff this way, but it's really hard to talk about people this way because our love for our family members and our ministries to our family members are very, very, very important. So the notion of calling them wind should be a little uncomfortable to you. I'm a little uncomfortable even saying it. But I think Jesus is hinting at something when he says these words. Listen. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and life and children, excuse me, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. See, in Luke 14, what Jesus is saying there, he's saying being a disciple of Christ is greater than. Use the little, the little sign, the little Pac-Man sign. Disciple of Christ is greater than being a son, being a husband, being a parent, being a brother, being a sister, even being yourself. Being a disciple of Christ is more important. And in Job's case, Job is a lesson on what or who matters ultimately. See, Job, as a son of the east, a fine son of the east, that over the course of the book will be made into a son of God, is, his role as a son of God is greater than being a parent to seven boys and three girls. It's greater than being a king, is what he was, a micro-king, remember? In ancient Edom. It's greater than being a property owner. What it boils down to in the book of Job is what matters ultimately Man, it helps me to sort of reorient, to realize, man, things like this, little simple things like this. You know you won't be married in heaven, right? I love Christy, and we're going to spend eternity together, I trust, but we're not going to be married in heaven. This thing right here is an ultimate. Man, family is important, but it is an ultimate. Marriage is important, but marriage is in everything. Being a parent is important, but even parenting isn't everything. And you can deify any and all of the above roles, and you can even do it in the name of piety and miss the point that what it boils down to ultimately is God, period. And loss has a way of putting things back into perspective. And that's what's happened here in Job. His ledgers have been cleared 
They're wiped. There's nothing in there. All he has in the beginning is God, and all he has in the end is God. What is striking to me in the book of Job, over the course of the book of Job, that you'll see as we continue on, is Job has lost everything, and he spends the rest of the book not asking for his stuff back. That's where I find myself in counseling so often. Man, I've lost this. I've lost this. Can you help me? Can you help me? Well, I can't help you. I can't give that stuff back to you. And I can't even promise that God will give you that stuff back to you. But I can promise this. You may find God in that loss. That's the ultimate treasure of the loss. Job has lost everything, and he spends the rest of the book not asking for his stuff back, not asking for his family back. Obviously, his family is dead. He spends the rest of the book looking for God. See, that's why it's wisdom. That's wisdom literature. Worship, this is the first point. Worship is looking to and for God in times of loss. What we tend to do is look to God to get our stuff back. That's missing the point. You got it out of order. The stuff matters, even family matters. But ultimately, it boils down to God. Let wiped ledgers bring you to God for God's sake. Not just to get your stuff back. That's worship. Let's look at this next phrase. Just sort of summarize what we've considered so far. He says, I'm no poorer than when I was or when I was born. But ultimately over the rest of the book, he's saying, but God, I want to see you. Okay, it doesn't just land on, I came in empty-handed and I'm leaving empty-handed. It goes in the direction of, but God, I want to see you. That's huge. But he declared something that's super strange in this passage. We're not going to go to the second phrase yet because there's something else that's really strong here something else that's profound that gives a real sense of hopefulness about what he said. He says, naked he came into this world via the womb, and then naked he says he will return, i.e., to the womb. I want you to think about that for a minute. He might be implying that he's going to return to the earth from which he came. He might be implying that as Adam was formed from the dust, to dust he shall return, but he didn't really say that. And that's not really what happens over the course of the rest of the book. It sounds as if he said he'll return to his mother's womb. It almost actually sounds like a request. Like he's hoping to be reborn somehow. The only other place where I can think about anybody talking about entering, re-entering their mother's womb is in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus approaches Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, how are you doing all these great tricks? And Jesus doesn't even respond with, Here's how I'm doing all these great tricks. He responds and says, Unless a man is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of God So not only is being born again important, it's actually essential to entering God's kingdom. So how would this phrase or this statement, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return, i.e. to my mother's womb, how would that be worship? And how would these words be God approved? You get the sense here that the reference to returning to his mother's womb in Job is that Job's looking for rebirth. Because that's what happens over the rest of the book. He's reborn. There are hints of being born again through the pain of rebirth. Now, I want to just spend a moment on that, just the pain of rebirth. Rebirth through suffering and loss. I don't remember my birth. 
But I bet it was pretty crazy. I bet in this room there's no one who does. I don't know of anyone who actually remembers their birth. There's actually a name for it. It's called infantile amnesia. And I think it's the Lord's protection for us that we don't remember our birth. It's only after two or three years of life that we begin to remember things. So even if you remember your first memory, it might be something that was taught to you, or it actually may be a legitimate memory. But typically, we don't remember anything before year two or three. We don't really know why. Scientists don't know why. We're learning at the fastest rate in our lives. It seems like our memories would work, but if you think about it, you don't, probably don't have a memory before that age. And maybe this is God's protection for us, a mechanism guarding us from the trauma of remembering the pain of our birth. When we're talking about pain and birth, is typically what we're talking about is mom. It's funny, we were sitting at the dinner table last night, and we were laughing about Lamaze class. Man, I was ready for our first, Evan, our firstborn. We took a Lamaze class, and I was ready to throw down. I mean, I'm like steely-eyed coach. I had my Lamaze, I had it down. And then Christy had an epidural and just like, what a jip, man. So mad. Like she wasn't even in pain. I mean, so mad. I fell asleep. In fact, they had to wake me up before Evan was born. Same on the other two as well. It's just the epidural just robbed us all of really experiencing the pain. You typically think of mom when you're talking pain and birth. Really think about the child. Think about what that must have been like. I mean, it's a, it's a protection. I would, we'd probably spend ourselves in lifelong therapy if we actually remembered our birth. <laughs> think about it. There you are in the pool. It's the perfect temperature. You don't even have to get out to eat. You're just floating weightlessness. So comfy. And then the next thing you know, I mean, you're in there for a long time, too. It's not like just a few minutes. You're in there for a long time, like nine months you're in there. And then all of a sudden, the pool drains. <laughs> and you're like, ugh, this is a problem. But then the next thing you know, you're actually being drawn into the drain. <laughs> I mean, right? That's terrifying. We're laughing right now. But imagine if you could really think about that and remember that. That adds a whole new meaning to naked and afraid, you know, when you come out. (laughs) Wow. But think about it. We don't often associate pain with birth. It's a time to celebrate, a time of joy. But really think about it for a minute. It's God's protection for us that we don't remember the travail of childbirth as the baby. But what goes with birth and rebirth is pain and suffering. And I get the sense here that that's what Job is doing here. He's longing for it. He's looking forward to it even. I would offer that the second thing that we can draw from this passage in regards to worship is that worship recognizes the pain of rebirth for what it is, new life. Man, we know what's in store for the baby in the womb. We know it's going to be better. But when you're that baby, man, you're thinking, I don't want out of this. I'm comfortable. I'm happy. But you're going, no, it's going to be better out here. Trust me, I know it's going to be painful. I know it's going to be scary. And we can say the same thing about the travails that we go through. That God uses those to bring us into a better place with him. Let's consider that second phrase. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think we can glean two things from this passage, two worship things from this passage. First of all, we recognize he didn't curse the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans. 
He got this cascade of bad news. He's dealing with this bad news, and he doesn't make a beeline to those Sabaeans and those Chaldeans. He didn't get mad at the meteorologist because he didn't give him a report about the fire coming that day or the wind that's going to blow four corners of his house in. He doesn't blame anybody. And our current context might be that our approach that would be worship would be not to blame cancer, not to blame science, not to blame genetics, not to blame bad medicine, but in, we could do what he did in his case and just to make a beeline to God. He doesn't run to blame. The parents in this room know the struggle, or even the kids in this room, or even the adults who were kids know the struggle of when you're stuck in that blame situation where you're just blaming stuff. You can't move forward with a child that's just blaming everything. And you as a child will never move forward, or you as a young person, or you as an adult, will never move forward when you're just blaming people. When I'm in a position where I'm dealing with counseling with someone, marital counseling, whatever, life counseling, whatever it might be, having to do with their faith and all, and they're just in a position where they're blaming everything, we're stalled. We're stalled. And it's a sad, heartbreaking place. Blaming God, blaming everyone, blaming anyone, blaming timing, blaming chance, blaming parents, blaming upbringing, blaming themselves even. Job's worship, though, was not blaming anyone. And he made a beeline straight away to God. Look how saturated this response is with the Lord. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's not blaming Anybody. Worship doesn't blame, but looks instead to God. Lastly, worship blesses God in all things. He blessed his name as good and wise and sovereign. And we hear his pain and his suffering over the rest of the book, but we see it right up front. He didn't sin with his lips. He blessed the God who served him up. He blessed the God who gave Satan permission to test him. Surely, people of God, it's not characteristic of us that if we don't get what we want, we'll not praise him. Surely, that's not characteristic of us. That if we don't get what we want, we'll not praise him. Man, I think that's worship at its finest when you trust him, when you don't have an answer and you can't make sense of it. Blessing his name. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as a result of the time that we spent this morning and as a result of the time that we spend over these weeks in Job, that um, not asking for difficulty, not asking for struggles and suffering and pain, but Lord, I am asking for this, that you would guard us and keep us from trouble-free lives. Lord, I pray that you would guard us and keep us from combating trouble with pleasure. I pray that you would guard us and keep us from combating trouble and suffering and pain with virtue even, or with vice, or with blame. Lord, I pray that we would make a beeline to you, that you would draw us into your presence. Lord, I pray that you would deliver us through the travail of rebirth into your presence. We are thankful that you do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For our supper this morning, I want to confess something to you.
I've always been kind of embarrassed reading Job, especially the passage that I've read, read this morning, that we've considered this morning, because how Job responded to this cascade of difficulty is not how Ben McGraw responds to difficulty. I want to model myself after Job. I think that's what the church has done for 2,000 years. Job has been um, a person to model. Okay? He has been in some ways a person to emulate. But as I do that and as I think about the small-scale versions of catastrophes that I might have to deal with that are even hard to even call it catastrophe, I don't respond any way even close to Job. So what we might find ourselves doing as we consider the um, sort of the example, the model for how to respond, is we may find ourselves so discouraged that we're just, ah, forget it. I could never respond that way, so why even try? And here's where I want to encourage you to connect this to Christ. The church for 2,000 years has looked to Job as a model for how to respond to suffering. But the church also, especially the early church, and I think this has been lost in the contemporary church, has looked to Job as a prefigure of Christ. Has looked to Job as someone to understand what Christ did for us and who Christ is and who he is to us now. Okay, so as I look to Job and I just, it's just me and Job, I'm going, ah, man, I'm done. This is terrible. But then when I bring Christ into this picture and realize that Job is just a prefigure of Christ and realize that Job responded well, he didn't sin with his lips at all, but man, Jesus responded even better. Jesus responded in a way, first of all, I can understand. He said, Lord, take this cup from me. That's the prayer that we pray so often for each other, for ourselves, for one another on Wednesday mornings when men gather and pray for you for different circumstances. We're praying, Lord, take this cup from them. Please, this cancer, this job loss, this marital struggle, whatever it might be, take this cup from them. A very natural and fair prayer. But his response was even better when he took it a step further and he said, but not my will, but yours. See, here's the cool thing. You're not measured by how well you respond to pain and suffering. Okay, there's not like a report card up there where he's saying, ah, it's a D. D minus. That should be a relief to you. Because here's the reality. The report card actually says you, you've received an A. Not because of how you performed, but by your faith in Christ and your union with Christ as a result of your faith in Christ, that his perfect response to pain and suffering and loss and difficulty becomes yours. Man, that's the good news that we share every single week. If we, if I, if we stopped without that part of the good news, man, I'd kind of walk out of here going, wow, this faith thing is rough. I'm not sure I can go the distance. I'll never be able to respond like Job, Right? But we don't have to walk out of here that way. We can walk out of here knowing that we have been reckoned in, we have been reckoned to have responded perfectly. Not because we did, but because of our faith in Christ. Man, I love the supper. It happens every single week because it brings us back home. It brings us back home to good news. If we could accidentally walk out of here with bad news of, ah, oh, you gotta act like Job. Oh, that's bad news. We could walk out of here going, man, yes, try and model yourself after Job. And trust Christ while you're doing it. 
Because here's the crazy thing. As you're trusting Christ while you're doing it, as you're enjoying Christ while you're doing it, while you're enjoying his response to pain and suffering and difficulty and loss and bearing the sins of the world, he's actually transforming you to respond more like him over time. That's the crazy good news. Through worship, through enjoying Christ, he's changing you to move and act and respond more like him. It actually is a supernatural thing that's taking place. Man, that's good news. We can leave with good news, taking the supper and enjoying Christ's perfect response to pain and suffering and difficulty and loss. Let's distribute the elements.